Joe Biden rocks the State of the Union, sort of. And will the FBI succeed in neutralizing the traditionalist Catholic threat? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Jack Butler, and the notorious MBD. Michael Brennan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babel and the Bonson Group. More about them in due course. For some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, I think there are there, uh, a couple things... With regard to the uh, performance of the State of the Union, we're going to separate out the economic nationalism. That was a major theme, at least at the beginning, and talk about that in a second segment. But if we just go pure performance, I think it was a mixed bag. Because on the one hand, most of the speech, you kind of look at him and he's mumbling, uh, he's running sentences together, he's uh, displaying, you know, odd affect, kind of shouting uh, weirdly and and for no discernible reason. But then, you know, it was a pretty peppery performance. And he went out of his way to engage with Republicans who uh, were not particularly uh, polite and were heckling him and shouting back uh, from the the audience. And he uh, won this exchange. Not that there was much to be won because Republicans already put entitlements off the table, but had Republicans standing and cheering uh, his his statement, oh, now we all agree, right, that we're not going to touch entitlements. So what do you think won out for the, the average viewer to the extent that this matters at all? Would they look at Biden and say, ah, that guy is really too old to be president? Or, or eh, you know, maybe he still has some fuel in the tank. Um, I think I think some fuel in the tank. I mean, I thought uh, the speechwriters did him well by keeping the speech, you know, as jargon-free and as folksy uh, as it was, especially in the first hour. Um, I think... I think expectations for Biden are so abysmally low in these performances, uh, and partly because he keeps out of public sight so much compared to previous presidents, or at least the last two or three, um, that, you know, people wonder if he's going to make it through. And he, uh, I I don't think he struggled uh, with anything other than moderating his tone and and the the one crazy ad lib where he went off the text and said, name me one head of state yeah. that'll trade places with <laughs> Xi, Xi Jinping. Name me one! Unfortunately, there's probably lots of them. Well, didn't Obama say, right, it'd be easier to be the president of China? Right. Uh, but um, the the biggest impression I got, though, was that what, what struck me about it most of all was that the relentless focus on bread and butter issues in the first hour it just seemed like a huge contrast to political media, which is aimed at like political junkie audiences, which is filled with foreign policy and culture war debates, um, which are important. I mean, they're like two most important things to me. Um, but it was like Biden was speaking to a completely different audience than, uh, mm-hmm. than the rest of us. Uh, at times, and that made me nervous that uh, maybe he is in touch with something, and, and his team are in touch with something that others are missing. Uh, I didn't think like I, I mean that some of the reactions, you know, about it being like a brilliant speech are of course over the top and partisan and motivated, but 
uh, I don't know. I guess in my mental model of a voter who is not tuned in relentlessly to politics, tuning into this would look, um, I think, made Biden look good and made him look good in contrast to the Republicans who were rowdy uh, mm-hmm. in the audience. So, Jack, another notable aspect of the speech, uh, in contrast to Bill Clinton's post-midterm uh, State of the Union and Barack Obama's, there, there was no give at all. Now, Clinton basically rhetorically surrendered and said the era of big government was over and then proceeded to you know expand government in, in incremental uh, ways uh, going forward the, the, uh, the rest of his, um, well, when, when he won his second term by the end. And Barack Obama was never made sort of the turn to the center that Clinton did. But even he was like, let's let's talk about entitlements. Let's work something out. And there was none of this in in uh, Biden's speech because he you know, feels, though, for understandable reasons that he basically won the midterms. Yeah, there's so I let's stipulate up front that I have the same almost universal contempt for this speech on the on the right, just as the, the format of it and the whole pageantry of it, it disgusts me. But yes, that that is a notable aspect of the delivery that there there wasn't any of that, but the the way it was delivered was almost meant to disguise that. So it, it wasn't mm-hmm. there there wasn't a kind of uh, last yeah. Jedi style aesthetic to the thing in the way mm-hmm. of the the speeches last year, but the that yes, substance like, didn't really let's all, get a, let's all get along and unify around everything I want. Yeah, right. I mean it wasn't he wasn't actively at least on the on the surface antagonistic toward republicans but there wasn't anything in the speech aside from token gestures about you know looking forward to working with kevin mccarthy that would indicate that he's going to change his approach at all and that he's uh going to alter his beliefs or genuinely work with republicans as opposed to merely as a result of the obligations of his position and it's and its place in our constitutional order uh have to deal with them as a reality so yeah i i I don't really think that that that's certainly not going to change and as when it comes to the speech itself i i don't think that uh biden's delivery really transcended the limitations of the format and i i think a lot of people as a result of this strange curve that biden is always graded on are giving him too much credit and i i personally don't find it that impressive when you know, after he's been after he's been comfortably numbed up before an audience, that he can make it through an address without slumping over or something. So, but I, by the by those by that strange curve, I, the the it sort of touched the erogenous zones of the various people who are invested in the success of his presidency. So, good for them, I guess. But I, so, I don't really uh, see much of a change coming. So, Charlie Cook, we've we've done it. We we've discussed the the State of the Union, this monstrosity. <laughs> We are Quislings. Um, you are not, so you have the shotgun ready and prepared to uh, uh, spray spray this whole uh, monstrosity with with buckshot. So go ahead. <laughs> well, I hate everything about it. I hate the fact that it exists. If I had my way, I'd go back to how it was between eighteen oh one and nineteen thirteen. Not that I was there when a letter was sent. The Constitution doesn't demand this. But that aside, this is not a useful event. And that applies to Democrats and Republicans. 
The New York Times ran a piece yesterday saying, at last, Biden has his foil. He's been struggling to demonstrate how dangerous Republicans are, and now he can do it because they shouted at him. What it didn't say is when he lied. That's not my evaluation. He admitted it immediately. That was the most remarkable thing about the exchange that got everyone talking. He said, well, Republicans, they want to end Social Security. He said, well, I'm not saying most of them, or, or, or many of them, or really any of them, but... And the Times doesn't think this is worthwhile. None of those lies worthy of an analysis. So we have a president who stood there and lied his head off. When you could understand what he was saying. We have a Republican Party that behaved in response like a bunch of barnyard animals. Gave him what he wanted. And you have a press that is incapable of processing that this is an embarrassing disgrace. I'm embarrassed as an American citizen that this is our politics. I was embarrassed by it. And I'm embarrassed that we have come to treat the biggest financial question in the future of the country, which is what we're going to do about entitlements, as if it's all a political game. I will plead with some of our listeners, please don't send me emails telling me that reforming Social Security and Medicare are political losers. I know that. It's also irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. Joe Biden is the president. He wanted to be the president. He was not kidnapped and put into the White House against his will. He ran for the office. And he is abdicating his responsibility, as are many Republicans, by refusing to talk about this as if this is anything other than a political football. If we do nothing about Social Security and Medicare, there will be automatic cuts. It's in the law. 2033 at this rate. The question is not whether we're nice or mean or... The question is, what do we do before that point? And the press cannot cover this. It cannot evaluate it outside of sports, outside of the playground. So I, I watched this, and after a while, I thought this is futile. Now, if the president of the United States wanted to defend what is essentially a speech from the throne that sits ill within our constitutional order. He could have actually talked about some things that the public and Congress might have benefited from hearing. He might have actually made a case. He might, for example, have justified the war in Ukraine. This isn't a criticism of him, because I agree with Biden on Ukraine. But a lot of people don't. You could see the justification for going in front of the body that funds that war and is funding that war to the tune of tens of billions of dollars, the body that decides the extent to which we get involved in this sort of international affair, and saying, here is why it is important for three, four, five, ten minutes. Here is why it is in our national interest to spend your money. Here is why it is in our national interest to escalate our involvement from money to weapons to tanks, perhaps even to airplanes. But he didn't. It would have been useful if he had given an update on the Chinese balloon, other than saying, look at me, I'm Tom Cruise. It would have been useful if he had perhaps laid out our fiscal situation, talked about the budget, talked about unemployment and the report that we saw. But he didn't. He stood there, he cast himself as the great talisman of American life. Everything that's good was him. 
He came in on January 20th. Postdoc Ogre, Propter Hog, anything that improved since that point, that must be him. Congratulations. And everyone else is bad. All other objections are irrelevant. What is the point of that? Why does the House of Representatives, which is currently run by the other party, invite him in to do that? A separate branch, a branch that is not separate and equal, a a branch that is superior, a branch that can get rid of him if it wants to. Why does this happen? The next day, he ran a campaign event. He's in Florida yesterday, repeating the thing that he admitted wasn't true after he received some pushback. He could have done this anywhere. But no, they invite him into the House of Representatives and they televise it. And we're all supposed to accept that this is edifying. (laughs) Well, it wasn't. It wasn't edifying from Biden. It wasn't edifying from the Republicans who shouted stupidly back at him. And it certainly wasn't edifying in the coverage. I I, I just it's embarrassing that this is our politics. So, Jack, he was obviously Biden, uh, dishonest and demagogic on uh, a number of of topics. One that stood out was energy. And and this is where he he did not get the better of um, the barnyard animals uh, in in the audience. So he says these oil executives, you know, they're not investing in uh, refineries and more production capacity. And I met with these executives and they say, well, these are are, uh, investments you really need to do for the long term. And I said to them, well, yeah, we'll need oil for the next maybe 10 years and just spontaneous laughter from Republicans. This is just ridiculous. You know, he's he's uh, showing that the oil executives actually had a legitimate point because, I mean, these refineries, especially pipelines, I mean, you need these things to pay off over like 30 years. And if you think that uh, the, the government is going to imminently shut you down or shut you down just in the medium term, you're not going to invest. And Biden made it clear that that's, that's uh, exactly where he's Uh, coming from. And even the uh, U.S. government's own estimates, oil and gas, I think, are 78 percent of our energy consumption at the moment. In the year 2050, they'll still be the most important sources. So the idea that uh, in 10 years oil is going to go away is a a laughable fantasy. I would say that energy is probably one of the areas in which the limitations and contradictions of Biden's worldview, specifically in the left's worldview generally, just run up against reality itself most clearly because people need energy. <laughs> and it, it's, it's simply a fact that the sources of energy that people on the left, for whatever reason, prefer to use and want to subsidize the heck out of to make feasible, simply, I mean, the subsidies don't make them feasible. And I, I was hoping, and in some quarters this has been the case, that the reality of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine would have made this more present to people like Biden, but it, it almost it hasn't. And uh, Michael actually wrote a, a very uh, a cogent assessment of this and this reality a couple of I think late last year that you can choose between winning the war. Uh, winning the war in Ukraine or winning the war uh, of on green energy. But you kind of, right now, you can't really have both uh, because, because it's just the, those sources of energy are not there in a way that they need to be. And they won't be for a long time. We're simply going to need oil and gas and making a war on on ener- those energy producers while at the same time you, you need them for just the basic reality of life is not going to work. And you also can't do that certainly while 
I don't know, trying to take credit for the declining price of gas. I mean, the, the presidential direct connection to that is tenuous anyway, but it certainly doesn't make sense when you are trying to claim credit for it at the same time that you are doing everything you can to prevent it from happening. So it just doesn't, that, that doesn't make any sense. And laughter in that instance, I know, I know we were a little critical of the, the heckling of, of the Republicans, but laughter seems an appropriate response to mm-hmm. just being caught in that, that web of contradictions that, that Biden was on this topic. Yeah, I think laughter and groans are entirely <laughs> appropriate. They're appropriate on this podcast, perhaps. Either. Yeah, so MBD, let's just really hit, quickly hit the Sarah Huckabee Sanders response. I think she did pretty well. I think she helped herself. It's, it's not an easy task. Uh, you very often come away having hurt yourself or created some em- embarrassing a moment, you know, Marco Rubio famously uh, needing to hydrate uh, in the midst of his. By the way, response. that was another really stupid moment in our politics of which we should be ashamed. The amount of analysis devoted to that. Oh, yeah. If you look at what he actually did, he took a quick drink of water. The thing that keeps hydration us alive. is good. Yeah, I think Bizarre. that one of the reasons that it, it had some resonance is that he didn't just say, oh, excuse me a second. You know, he, he tried to, he, he kind of looked very nervous and, and <laughs> he tried to pretend nothing was happening. But I, I take your point. There's obviously a... Well, I know that you are biased against water, Rich. Your <laughs> items once was how you hated oh, drinking yeah. water. It's a so. boring, it's a boring drink. But anyway, MBD, I thought it's Sanders did, did, did pretty well. Um, she, she has a, a certain um, uh, authority as a... As a speaker, she had some memorable lines. And then very notably, you know, there's this undercurrent. We need a new generation of, of leadership, which didn't just seem aimed at Joe Biden necessarily. And, I mean, I thought this was a really interesting straw in the wind. You know, she's the White House press secretary, right? That's that's what made her. She wouldn't be governor of right. Arkansas without it. And she tells a five-minute, whatever it was, felt like five-minute um uh, story at the end about traveling to Iraq during the holidays with President Trump and never mentions his name, which is a sign that even she realizes when when you're uh, on a platform trying to appeal to the middle, in some sense, it's it's better not to have that direct association with a former boss. Yeah, I, I thought you're right to pick up on the the themes that she chose a way of criticizing Biden that was indirectly criticizing Trump or at least like saying like maybe the Republican party doesn't need Trump when she said, you know, Biden's the oldest president we've ever had. I'm the youngest governor. We need a a new generation of leadership. Um, you know, that to me, that seemed to have collateral effect on Trump, um, or should, um, I thought her speech was a little glum. I thought, um, Uh, You know, I agree with her that the Republican Party needs to be the party of normality against insanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a great framing for the future. Um, Yes, but there's a little, there's a caveat coming. I can feel it. Well, there's a caveat in that, in that Biden, Biden was like relentlessly normal in his speech. And like, Mm -hmm. he gave only the fleetingest mention of like transgender youth or something like that like it was almost like the most perfunctory way he could have mentioned it and the least inflammatory way right and so i I just felt like biden was not presenting the 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 woke brand doesn't stick to biden for whatever reason it should by all rights given what his administration does and you know the guidance it gives what it funds etc but just his personal brand he seems too old and too out of touch to be a, you know, mm-hmm. like a blue-haired, mm-hmm. 
nose ringed crazy on these issues. Right. So, um, so yeah, I thought that, I thought that, uh, didn't work. And I do think just notably in both, both speeches, I think underplayed the, the opioid crisis, um, like I just think, when you're getting more Americans dying in a year of drug overdoses than you had in the entire Vietnam War, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is like a five alarm fire issue, and it's an issue that I think Republicans can build around it. Uh, you know, it's an issue that touches on the border. It touches on the the pure decadence of a Biden administration health department that's focused on transgender youth rather than on uh this this drug crisis um so i think that's where they should have should have focused um but overall it was it was an it was okay it was a passable response jack butler extra question to you joe biden's state of the union makes you think he is a little more likely to be reelected than you might have thought even if just by a scooch which is a great word. I would have thought it was Yiddish, but actually it has a, a Japanese derivation oh. or had no effect at all or, or made you think he's less likely. I think he is more likely to, maybe slightly more likely to run for president. I know that seems li- already likely at this point, but he gave or, or perhaps introduced a taste of what his second presidential campaign might look like. So I know that doesn't quite answer your question because I don't. I think I, it seems too difficult to make twenty twenty four election predictions at this point. What even even for it's my difficult. predictive powers? You're just sitting. You're just sitting on your your uh, your victory from the the Senate predictions. <laughs> don't don't want to mess it up. So we're That's not going to so get any true. predictions from you until like the day before the election or something. I can. Yep. Yep. All right. That's, so Jack Jack's not really now. playing. So Charlie. <laughs> Do I think it's more likely he runs? No. Do you, do you think um, that that was Jack's uh, Jack's version of the question? Does State of the Union make you think he's any likelier to be reelected, or no effect, or less likely? Well, at the risk of repeating Jack's mistake, I think it might make him more likely to be renominated because the. Democrats seem to be thrilled by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's. Uh, I don't think it's. If he's going more to likely have... to be nominated, he's more likely to become. Right, that's a prerequisite. Right. But I don't think it's more likely that he will win as a result of the State mm-hmm. of the Union, no. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I accept that uh, subtle answer, MBD. So I. This is the first time I thought, uh oh, he could get reelected. Um, but I want to put a little context on that which is that he's coming off a jobs report that shockingly had half a million jobs in it this this the stock market has basically stabilized in the last couple of weeks inflation is coming down and if if you listen to our our friend david bonson in some cases we're even seeing deflation already um the war in ukraine it's not the uh the advantages that Russia seems to be accruing in the last couple of weeks haven't really slipped into the public consciousness yet. So maybe this is a high tide mark. Um, that's all I'm saying is that I, I looked at it and thought, uh oh, this is a guy running on 
big, broad themes and popular initiatives. Uh, but he has a lot of wind at his back, and he's still below level approval rating. So more likely, but that doesn't mean very likely to win. Yeah, so I, I'm going to put – I basically agree with, with Michael. So I'm going to put myself down as a scooch, even though it wasn't really the, the speech so much as just the, the realization, all right, the Republicans already lost this guy twice, in effect, uh, right? They certainly lost in 2020. They more or less lost in the midterms, and it's entirely plausible to believe they can lose to him again. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Babbel. One of the most exciting things about a new year is that you have no idea what adventures are in store for you. From new travel experiences to new jobs or picking up new skills, there's no better way to get further into 2023 than by learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can feel confident no matter where this year takes you. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for the lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientific typically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, plus Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today. With Babbel, right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash editors. That's babbel.com slash editors for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. So, Charlie, given the, uh, the major theme and emphasis at the beginning of the State of the Union on economic nationalism and the favorable reaction from most Republicans in the audience, I guess we're all economic nationalists now, huh? Well, I'm not. I mean, obviously, I also hate the context and content of Biden's speech because I don't agree with him on very much. And I don't like this trend in the Republican Party toward leftist presumptions that we have seen now in earnest for seven, eight years. I accept that I am probably out on a limb here in the country. People love to hear by American. You can get Democrats to applaud it and you can get Republicans to applaud it. I think it's a side issue. Tactically, it's not particularly smart for Republicans to try to play on the same ground as Democrats do because they will always be outbid if they do so. But, yep, the Buy American stuff is popular. In effect, though, when a president says, I've taken $700 billion of your money or borrowed $700 billion of your money, as the case may be, and I am charged with investing it in infrastructure, and I intend to buy American, he's saying you're going to get less for that money than you would have. 
He is promising to spend the money unwisely. He is promising to get less infrastructure. I know people don't like hearing it, but that's the truth of the matter. There are many supply chains that are more efficient than the ones we have solely here within the United States. And if we don't use them, we will end up spending more for less. So, yeah, it's an applause line. Yeah, as people have pointed out, Michael among them, some of Biden's speech sounded a bit Trumpy. I think Michael said that Trump's being squeezed from the left and the mm -hmm. right. Ross Douthat in the New York Times made this point as well. I don't think it's particularly smart politically, even though these themes can be popular. But I think economically it's disastrous. And I look forward to a time in which people are less likely to clap like seals for economically illiterate. <laughs> so, Jack Butler, you made a good point on the corner. And actually, I was talking to Charlie about this earlier this morning. You made the point, you know, this is not a new thing from Democrats, right? And Dick Gephardt, who is the um, Democratic majority leader in, in the House, uh, 20 years ago or so, whatever it was, I believe from from Iowa. This is just a, a huge emphasis of his forever, forever. And uh, he, he's kind of basically won out now because the, the Republican resistance to this kind of economic policy, at least directionally, has uh, largely collapsed. And our friend and colleague Dominic Pino has, has written very compellingly uh, about how, how this doesn't make sense. The, the, the Buy America provisions, they're, they're really vague. They're, they're complicated. They're an obstacle to, uh, to, to building stuff, ironically. And Ezra Klein, the progressive writer at the New York Times, has, has been on this kick lately as well. Why can't we build stuff? Well, we have a really hard time building stuff, not because our um, uh, methods haven't become more uh, advanced and innovative. It's just we have all, this all these regulations and red tape in the way and these Buy American rules are among them. Yeah, on, briefly on the subject of, of Ezra Klein, he is now part of this, I don't know how large it is, but possibly nascent movement of supply-side progressives. And it would be interesting, I, I didn't pay much attention to this, but it would have been interesting to see these supply-side progressives criticize aspects of Biden's speech, because if they actually do believe what they say, then there are, there are things in it they would object to. But as... Dominic pointed out in a in a piece critical of Ezra Klein recently. It took it was very mentally difficult for Klein to come to the conclusion that regulations were causing construction to become harder. It was, so it was he a didn't. great. He he like in the in the most anguished and indirect possible way he subtly admitted that it may be true but it just it, it required such great effort to extract from himself that concession so you, you've triggered you've triggered charlie because we're, we're on what do you mean well, he i just think that it well he didn't come to that conclusion and he has this well trick, he does mention regulation in he the does and then he and then he bats away from it as kevin's pointed out he also plays this obnoxious game where he describes small c conservatives but he seems to cast any progressive who has been instrumental in 
engendering regulations that he doesn't like as a small c conservative because they don't want anything to change it's a linguistic right. game he can't help himself i would just add to this that i don't have a problem per se with buying american that'd be great but you'll notice what biden didn't do he just said go buy american he didn't say i want to create an environment in which that is the obvious choice people would mm -hmm. not need to be told to buy american if buying American were the natural and optimum choice in these circumstances. The mm -hmm. fact that you have to say to them, there's an ad on the radio here in North Florida where this guy says, be American, buy American. This annoys the hell out of me. I'm not less American because I look through the various products that are on display and sometimes choose one that's made in Germany. The, the, supply part was completely missing from Biden's speech. He just says this out loud like Trump did. Go buy American, do your duty. It's not my duty. It's the duty of the president and our elected officials to create an economic environment in which American companies can thrive. If that happens, I'll be thrilled. I'm patriotic. I want us to do better than other countries. But you can't blame the consumer if the consumer notices that there are many things that are made elsewhere that are better or cheaper or more reliable mm -hmm. or all three. Yeah. Um, but briefly on the on the subject of the the sort of the Gebhardism now ascendant, yes, that that was the point I was trying to make in that corner post. That, that there were some there was a curious aspect of some conservative opinion that was saying, "Oh, Biden's co-opted Trumpism." Uh, not exactly. I mean, this is Democrats were in this space well before Trump came along, well before any Republican was really evincing these notions. I mean, and as you said or as Charlie said, I think they'll always be more comfortable with, with statism, fundamentally. They'll always be, uh, I don't want to say better, but more willing to implement it. And they'll always be more comfortable deviating from the American political tradition in a way that facilitates that. And I think the way, in my view, perhaps my naive view, but I'm sticking to it nonetheless, is that uh, Republicans would be better off trying to offer an alternative to that rather than a sort of their own version of it. That, like, um, a, a choice, not an echo, one might say. So th that that's where I come down on this. And that, that's why I found the some of the conservative reaction to Biden's speech that was very much almost envious of his ability to effortlessly tap into these, uh, fit his hand into these old gloves that the left has been wearing forever. That I found that sort of strange. Um, so... So MBD, I'm, I'm a little little mixed on this this general area. I don't think it's crazy for the government to um, say you know X X industry or sector is really really important. So we're going to try to push it along. You know, the, the aerospace industry during the Cold War would be an example of this, and it, it was not a it was not a disaster. And I do think we need to be more mindful. I think this is a a bipartisan consensus now of of uh, strategically sensitive areas where um, we, we need to make sure that we're not uh, falling behind China because they're subsidizing stuff and, and we're not. And we're just letting them suck it off our our shores. All that said, I, I've, I've just had an instinctive reaction uh, against this kind of buy American stuff since since I was a kid. You know, I was a 
a middle class uh, kid. You know, we, we were comfortable, but my parents had to be mindful of, of spending. And despite the huge e effort in the 80s to uh, convince everyone to buy American cars, they were crap. They were crap. And you, you'd buy them and, and you'd spend, you know, uh, the, the rest of the car's life, you know, in and out of auto shops. And m my parents couldn't afford that. So, so you know, we bought Toyotas and, and Volkswagens because they are better for um, the con consumer. So that, that has a lot of force for me. And also, Dominic, in one of these pieces, um, it, it points out, you know, just just the, the the level of special interest pleading when it comes to this these these kind of uh, giveaways, you know, high high, uh, high level sophisticated semiconductors. Yeah, let's make sure we have a plant here, and, and the only one going is not just in in Taiwan. But then you get the lumber industry is lobbying for what they want, and right. um, fiber optics and glass, and you know, it's not a new phenomenon. You know, it goes back to uh, the tariff of abominations. You know, uh, in the the 19th century and, and even earlier. Yeah, I mean, listen, I do think that the. The geostrategic argument is is moving things more than the economic arguments, right? Like, is moving the window in American politics, right? Like, Mike Gallagher was an originator of, you know, what was called the Front, you know, Limitless Frontier Act or whatever that eventually became the CHIPS Act, which he voted against. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that work here. I mean, <laughs> when you say your family bought Toyotas, uh, Toyota is not like... Uh, a product from a Randian economy <laughs> with with no subsidies, mm -hmm. right? Like, the, the, you know, um, and in fact, like, <laughs> Toyotas now are arguably American cars, right? I mean, if you mm -hmm. buy a Toyota in America, yeah. it was probably built in Indiana. Uh, yeah, the, the point is they were they were just they're they're better for the consumer. So yes, if everyone had had if that had been if had been cut off and they were limited to some extent, Japanese cars. You know, we have uh, some of us on on the right who love Reagan. You know, you can have you shouldn't have too rosy eyed a view of of how much a purist he was on on free market stuff. Right. Because well, um, there are quotas he imposed, but but it, it would have been bad for the American industry, uh, bad for American industry ultimately, <clears throat> and bad for the consumers if you it just if that hadn't been an option. Right. Uh, no, I agree. It would have been bad if it hadn't been an option. But the, it gets to there are conservative, more conservative, and less and less conservative ways of doing these kinds of policies. Right. Like there's there just is a difference between Elizabeth Warren and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, mm -hmm. And what you'll find is that the left lards this these things up with environmental and union protections, which are meant to. Um, bolster their, you know, bolster other parts of their agenda or their political coalition. Whereas thinkers, you know, on the right who have pushed for this stuff are actually looking at, you know, can we get rid of uh, OSHA regulations and replace them with either like sectoral bargaining for, for what uh, a particular industry needs as far as this, is safety regulation, you know, put that regulation closer to the industry itself rather than to the federal government or eliminating environmental regulation or um or unions altogether i mean those those are other parts of potentially legitimate policy to make yourself competitive internationally um so yeah i i, I think this is popular though because 
you know, Biden, the way Biden phrased it was, and I think this is the way anyone advocating for a smart industrial policy should phrase it, is we're going to make it easier to invest in American workers and American workforces in the forgotten places. Um, you know, it might be easy for people to write off, um, you know, Wisconsin and just say, hey, like, uh, let's just let the labor there get as cheap as it is in Mogadishu, and then there will be investment in that in that uh, state mm-hmm. again. But that's not actually politically viable uh, in the United States. Um, and listen, every country that struggles with this with these policies, right? Like, it's not like Japan, South Korea, and Germany don't face hard choices when they're making their industrial policies. They do. Right. And, and, um, you know, Germany has had the advantage of the Euro or outsourcing to, uh, you know, low labor, low labor cost Hungary. Uh, we might want to look at similar things of, of, uh, instead of outsourcing across the Pacific to China, maybe more trade with Mexico. Um, that actually might be a more viable industrial policy that's geostrategic and in our favor than, um, a pure by America. Charlie Cook, X question to you. Economic nationalism is the future in American politics, yes or no? No, it's not because it doesn't work. So it might be the future in American politics for a little bit, but it won't be the future in American politics for a little bit because uh, people will recognize that it is working against their interests ultimately. So n- no, no in the medium or long term? No in the medium or long term. Jack Butler. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. It'll be... It's having a moment, a bipartisan moment for, I don't know, next five years, but soon the results will start making themselves apparent as not actually being that great, and we will return to our senses. MBD. Um, I basically have the opposite view. I think the, the era of um, believing that the United States can be just a service economy uh, that lives on credit and buys everything else from China is over. Uh, I think it's an aberration. <laughs> I think. Yeah, but that's not the only way of making this work sustainably. The way to make it work sustainably is to change the level of taxation and regulation such that it makes sense to build things here rather than just shouting at people that they have to. No, I agree, but also there's there are, li- there are democratic limits on how low you know, uh, how unregulated it'll be, you know, like we're not going, America's not going to return to the factory towns where you buy all your money, where you, where you get paid in factory dollars and shop at the factory store. Yeah. But who said anything about that? Well, to be competitive with China, I mean, uh, where the, (laughs) where some of that is still in effect. Um, I mean, we're going to get sucked into a longer debate here and we should do this separately, but the, the reality is that there is, providing that the difference is not enormous, a benefit to having factories in the United States that transcends that it makes us feel nice. It is irrational at one level to have all of this production in China, but the economic benefit at the moment is so great that it's tolerated. So I don't think you need to get to exactly where China is, and China won't be exactly where China is in a few years either, 
to make it worthwhile to invest in the United States. What I object to here, outside of the exceptions that Rich laid out, which I actually agree with, I do think there are some security exceptions. But what I object to is just barking it at people or using the power of federal uh, you know, provisioners to, to say, well, we've passed this bill, we've taken your money, and we're now going to require that all of the purchasing is done according to these rules. I, that, that is not how you build a sustainably uh, American manufacturing sector. Yeah, you know, there, there's uh, this guy, Rob Atkinson, who writes about for us occasionally. And his big thing is the, the focus of the government. And this should be a government goal. There should be you know strategy and planning around it should be a, a productivity revolution in the American economy. Right. So for me, that's the kind of planning and strategy that makes sense. But part of it would be being really careful about these uh, these these thoughtless rules. But anyway, uh, that said, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, listen, I actually think when you get down to it, the American worker is more productive than the the competitor in Turkey or in China uh, for the most part. And if he's given a similar level of investment, we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to see a bit of a productivity revolution. Um, but the, the fact is, the way free trade sets it up is like... <laughs> capital is very easy to move to China to invest and seek a return there. It's actually very hard for a worker who loses his job in uh, Ohio to then relocate to the Shaozin right. uh, province to then seek the same job over there. Um, so, so like so, when, when you, when you strike a free trade deal with China, you're basically, you're saying um, China and the United States are going to compete for the same capital, but China's going to have radically different rules. So all the capital is going to go over there. Um, and very little is going to go to where you want it to go. And that's why the U.S., like, <laughs> like where we invest capital is where we have these bloat. We have we invest capital only in a few industries, and they're all, now all bloated and horrible, like education. <laughs> or, um, mm-hmm. And the, the, they are, you know, they aren't strategic. Like, it would be more strategic to invest more in Harvard than it is to invest in the, you know, 300th school that's applying for... Uh, protections on its on its uh, federal aid dollars, but that's what we. So do. so so. By the way, J- Jack, I, I don't want to say I, I was wrong, but there's been a, a whisper of doubt going going back to a uh, debate we were having a couple months ago about killer robots. Not because I don't think we need killer robots, and and I just thought of it because you know if we're gonna have a productivity revolution, obviously. Uh, robotics and AI will be a huge part of it, but I, I didn't count on these killer robots being woke, which which they apparently will be. <laughs> so maybe that's going to be a problem. They're going to come find yeah, you. That 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 will be a problem. Um, it'll make it easier for me to fight them, and it means that my case against them is even stronger. So my answer is yes. It is it is the the, the future, at least for the near term here, and Republicans who aren't. Uh, really economic nationalists themselves are still going to be on board aspects of this thrust uh, given the the security threat from China. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, the Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day, led by our own aforementioned David Bonson. And there was a reason 
He is a, uh, was aforementioned. He's often aforementioned in this podcast because we all rely on his analysis and commentary. Uh, anyway, the Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market. Their deep commitment to dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day. Warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing insanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. So MBD, finally, it appears that you, not quite directly, but they're getting closer. Uh, you are being targeted by the, the FBI, or at least at least your, your people. I, there's this uh, amazing, just it's hard to believe, you know, it's not from the Babylon Bee or something, but an FBI memo that was re retracted, uh, thankfully and, and, and rightfully, about the, the growing threat emanating from traditionalist Catholics. Yeah. Um, it, so this is, I don't know, quite a, a compliment in one way, like to see us as a threat. <laughs> uh, and yeah, they should be coming after me because I think they're... A, the FBI should be abolished. Um, but the, um, yeah, this memo basically uh, held out that there are radical traditionalist Catholics, many of them who go to the Latin Mass, and they might be a fertile recruiting ground for right-wing ethnically motivated extremism. So basically like, you know, white supremacist gangs or whatever. And, you know, it just talked very flippantly about how, you know, maybe this threat can be contained because we'll, we'll develop assets and contacts within the Catholic Church uh, to keep a, an eye on these people. And, you know, when you looked at this, this memo, it was based on a couple of Salon articles, an article from the Southern Poverty Law Center, another one from The Atlantic. And what, what you really got and what really offended me about it was um, it's not just a... A slander on like traditional Latin mass Catholics who are wildly overrepresented in conservative media. Um, you know, myself, Bill Buckley was one of these, Pat Buchanan, another, Michael Knowles over at the Daily Wire, another. Um, you know, it basically was saying that because Catholics are so anti abortion rights and are so skeptical of LGBTQ uh, rights. That, you know, this is another reason to suspect that they're a danger. And, and that kind of level of analysis seems to me to be anti, uh, it seems to be counterproductive for law enforcement since it doesn't narrow the threat to the genuinely conspiratorial and dangerous. It expands the threat to a huge portion of humanity who hasn't gone along with the moral revolution of the last 30 years in North America, right? I mean, it's like that. That's something that millions of evangelical Christians, Muslims could see themselves uh, in uh, if the camp is de is defined that widely. So I'm glad they I'm glad they retracted it, but uh, it's definitely a sign that 
the FBI has too many too much time on its hands to kind of go <laughs> after made up threats. It reads about on the on on salon.com. Um, and that's a problem. So, Charlie, in, in terms of a story made for um, uh, folks on this podcast, I would say MBD's first on this one, but but you're you're close second in line. Well, it's just utterly appalling. It is an attack on everything that this country is supposed to stand for. It is an attack on pluralism. It is an attack on religious liberty. It is an attack on political differences. And it's clearly an attack that is made not from a neutral evaluation, but from a particular ideological worldview. The only way in which you could justify this is to cast traditional Catholics, of which I am very much not one, as being so profoundly opposed to the individual rights that the nation is founded upon as to render them outside of the polity. In other words, the argument you would have to make, and I would reject this, but the argument that you would have to make is that traditional Catholics are, in a sense, akin to communists. You'd have to make a McCarthyite argument. that we have to make a, an exception for these people. Now, that, of course, doesn't really make a great deal of sense because an awful lot of people are pro-life. If being pro-life or not believing that men can become women or opposing gay marriage, for that matter is now akin to opposing the American ideal per se, then we really have crossed the Rubicon. But we would also have to apply that approach to people to whom it is clearly not applied. People, for example, who think we should abolish the Senate. People who think that we should pack or abolish the Supreme Court. People who have written, as some have within universities and elsewhere, that we should scrap the Constitution. As I say, I don't find persuasive the argument that anybody should have their political or religious or ideological views set apart. I'm an absolutist in this regard. But if we are going to do that, I don't think the first people on the list would be traditional Catholics, would it? They would be quite far down, actually. So I... I hate this. This is my theme on this podcast today. I hate everyone. <laughs> I'll try to come I, I up something this, you like by the end. But I also think that it is the most bizarre application of the logical train you have to build to get there that I could imagine. I feel in some ways, as I feel with the debate over gun control, when people start freaking out about concealed carriers. Concealed carriers are not the problem. <laughs> And within the uh, civic fabric of the United States, traditional Catholics are not the problem. Well, can I, well, actually, can I just... I will defend the FBI on one little thing here. <laughs> what? Okay, no, no, I, I just want to... As a historical matter, this isn't a reason to cast Latin Mass Catholics as a potential threat today. 
But the FBI's worst security breach was the spy Robert Hansen, who was an FBI mm. agent and a traditionalist yes. Catholic. A traditionalist but Catholic who was going to strip clubs. Uh, he, but he attended... Uh, hang out with prostitutes. Yeah, but he also yeah. attended Latin Mass at the same parish as Anson and Scalia, mm-hmm. um, yep. another Latin Mass Catholic conservative. Um, but, like, there is there is this one little bit of history. Now, of course, this is like... I don't want to turn Mr. Hansen into the Dreyfus <laughs> case of the American <laughs> history, but um, you know that there was a one particularly twisted soul that maybe the FBI has a a grudge against or or has a, a suspicion about uh, ever Does since. Does the memo mention him? No, no, no. It doesn't. Of course, it's it's all just recycle. I mean, yeah. for all I know, this all just- for all I know it was written by a kid in the Richmond office who like you know. <laughs> took a break from monitoring Twitter accounts. Right. Or spent too much time monitoring Twitter accounts. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and had their brain addled by this, this stuff. But I just wanted to throw that out there in case anyone in the audience is like thinking like, Hey, I thought I saw a movie about a Latin man's Catholic who <laughs> the movie is breach by the way. Yeah. Can you yeah. imagine? Can you imagine the reaction to this? If the word Muslim were in there instead of Catholic. Mm hmm. And for me as well. I don't want to see that. But you would have an awful lot more in the newspapers about this. I'm glad the FBI backed off. But this to me is is the sinister side of contemporary progressivism. So, Jack, since we're speaking of fake threats here, I would have thought, you know, after... um, 2016, 2017, and some of the research has done uh, that, you know, this Russian disinformation, these Russian bots really had no effect whatsoever, that uh, we, we might be getting beyond the disinformation panic, but no, we're, we're not. It is still with us in, in various forms. We've seen it pop up in stories the last uh, week or so, and Jonathan Turley refers to this phenomenon, uh, particularly with regard to the FBI and Twitter, as shadow censorship. It's not, it's not the government you know, exercising prior constraint or it, it itself going into to Twitter and taking posts down, but it's, it's leaning on private actors who you know, can, can make their uh, own, own decisions on this stuff to uh, tilt against free, free speech, at least uh, with regard to a certain kind of speech. Yes, but before I respond to that, I want to get in on the FBI hate fest since as a Catholic, I have a stake in this. And it's it's bad and terrible, and I oppose it passionately with every fiber of my being. But also, I guess this is just my disposition. I, I find it hilarious and amusing and also a little invigorating. I mean, no, nothing makes me more fervent as a Catholic than, than being persecuted by the government or the prospect of it. And uh, it's, it's a real shame that uh, Charlie mentioned crossing the Rubicon when what we need to be doing is crossing the Tiber. And, and Michael mentioned uh, that the, you, your your intro to his response uh, about uh, the FBI is closing in on him. It gave me this funny picture of Michael just like on a call with some FBI agent, and the tracer is narrowing in on the the Latin Mass Church where he is, and then he hangs up just before they get him, and he flees to another one. But anyway, Hides it in just the makes sense. Right, right. They can't, and then the agents swarm in, but he's already gone. Uh, onto the, his next his next target. Anyway, no, it's 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 silly and and bad. And so also silly and bad is this disinformation panic. But the, the particularly insidious thing about this, 
And the reason I guess I'm I'm less able to make light of it is that what we see here is an attempt to use non-government actors for essentially government purposes. The, the, the government purpose of uh, suppressing speech that is seen as uh, as undesirable. And in, in some of these in instances, it's been about you know, so-called COVID disinformation. But if anyone recalls the coronavirus pandemic period, there were a lot of things that were said at various points that were... Uh, that were verboten, supposedly, that then became mm -hmm. true, or they were true from the start, but then they became recognized as true. And so the, the idea of classifying things as dis disinformation the moment that they, are, that they are introduced is a way of enshrining the status quo of knowledge as the permanent base for, on which all discussion will take place. And that, that is not a recipe for actually finding the truth, in, in my view. And, and the, a recent experience bears that out. And the way that these tools are being employed is essentially an attempt to evade traditional and already extant restrictions on the ability of what governments can do. Because if you have private actors that are essentially acting in a government fashion, they their, their scope for action is, in theory, less limited than it would be if it were the government doing that. But even if it's the government in some way that's uh, cajoling or coercing or nudging them into this behavior. And that, that's very, that's very a very dangerous road to go down. And one, I, I don't actually have great answers to what to do about as a problem. But it, the first step seems to recognize it as one and to expose it wherever it's being practiced. And often just simply exposing it as such seems to scare people off because these are these are private actors who don't really ultimately have coercive power in, in the way that governments do so when when they're when they're called out for it in a meaningful way then they they sort of scuttle back into the corner and and go on to their ne next scheme but it, that's still no reason not to not to be worried about it so mbd we have the, this this continued uh, assault on uh, speech but on the positive sides of the ledger very often when there's a, there's overreaching there's a pullback you know the administration's disinformation czar didn't happen at the end of the day this FBI memo quickly reversed an embarrassment so what's your level of alarm about the threat to free speech in this country from from zero it's not not a big deal we we expose it we fight it we win to 10 extremely alarmed uh, I, I'm actually saying pretty high, like seven. Um, I think conservatives have entirely underreacted to the revelations we've had in the last several months. Um, uh, I think, yeah, we've had, we've knocked down a few things like the disinformation czar, but the government still funds all these sorts of private, uh, actors and not just our government. The German government funds a bunch of these, like the German Institute on radicalization and de-radicalization studies. Charlie's shocked that the German government would be doing such or, a thing. Right, you know, these, these, these I just hope the German government doesn't put a blemish on its record. There's a, <laughs> there's a, ton, there's a ton of these private-public partnership-funded NGOs that employ former security officials, former spooks, and ideological hacks in order to create these dummy, um, you know, guides to misinformation that then are used to cajole e either governments or or major corporations um to censor people and you know we've seen even you know former friends bill crystal was on one of these 
Hamilton 68 that falsely framed hundreds of Americans as Russian bots in in scores of news stories around the country during the disinformation panic under Donald Trump. Um, you know, these these outfits themselves are a source of disinformation uh, and polarization, all the things they claim to be fighting. Uh, and I think this has to be stamped out really ruthlessly. I mean, I think we're living in a kind of McCarthy era of paranoia, of... Uh, absolute fear that the American public aren't, you know, reading the right information or taking the right conclusions from every news story. And we, we, we basically have a ruling class that, that views itself not as a servant of the public. They have no sense of noblesse oblige. They, they have, they are possessed by a full blown terror of the populace. They view the rest of us as, suggestible terrorists in waiting and like as soon as someone speaks the wrong word to us on social media about covid or about crime stats or something like that like if if, oh my god like if someone you know retweets steve sailor there's going to be like a massive pogrom across the entire country and it's just you know by by the way going back to the state of the union the, the A really shameful moment was the way Biden framed the attack on Paul Pelosi, you know, connecting. Yeah, that was, was, I mean, it's just a nut. Yeah, it it was very bad. So so Charlie, attacked Paul Pelosi. Um, Sorry, what was that, Charlie? I was suggesting that Biden is a nut. Oh, so (laughs) level of alarm, zero to ten. Well, it's fairly high. I'm pro misinformation. In the same way I'm pro-hate speech. Well, I am, because you you can't have free speech and superintend it to the point Mm -hmm. at which you can eradicate misinformation or Mm -hmm. so-called hate speech or people sending me heinous things, which they do from time to time by email or on Twitter. I think that this is a utopian worldview, the idea that you can iron this stuff out. And I know that we've made great fun and should have of the claim that Russia swung the election, but misinformation does alter politics. People believe all sorts of things that aren't true. They're always going to. We've had conspiracy theories in this country right from the beginning. You go and ask a random person on the street who doesn't have a social media account, 10 questions, and you will find they believe something that is not true, perhaps even something that is ridiculous. You can't stop it. And I find the attempt to do so pernicious. Now, yes, it is worse when the government does it directly. But when the government does it indirectly, it is still trying to achieve the same end and to interfere in civil society and to perfect civil society in what it considers to be the right image. So I I find this alarming. I think one has to look at what it is that is being done before reacting. For example, I am profoundly opposed to the government working with Twitter or Facebook or what you will to silence people. I think that that is essentially a circumvention of the First Amendment and whether it's unconstitutional or not, we should have federal laws that require transparency. By contrast, the federal government is allowed to use its own speech to push back against things that it thinks are false. So we can't lump everything in the same way. But the instinct here, the aim here, is is really alarming because, as Michael said, it it belies a 
lack of trust in the public, a belief that the government has a responsibility to correct the public, and ultimately, yes, the suspicion that if the wrong people say the wrong things in public, that we're all likely to just go off and start killing people. Jack Butler. So 10 is the most worried, right? Yeah. Are we and, doing the numbers still? And, and Charlie, was a, Charlie gave it. MBD was a seven. Char Charlie took a pass on the number. Do, do you want to no. do a number, Charlie? Eight. Eight. We got a seven and eight on the board, Jack. I guess perhaps this is attributable to my general disposition. I, I'll go slightly lower than that at a six. I think we still have a pretty strong culture of free speech below the elite level. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that gives me pause is younger people mm -hmm. and how comfortable they are with actually with genuine free exchange. They, many of them, especially the, the would-be elites, people I'm going to have to be dealing with for the rest of my life, wish me luck, are, ha have spent a lot of their time in institutions that are constantly mediating disputes and ever, basically all their lives are controlled by external authorities and they solve problems by bringing in a third party to resolve. And the, so that instinct is a very dangerous one and could metastasize into something quite worrisome down the line. So I'm going to say seven, so I'll average us out right at seven because the, the elite threat is quite severe, but there, there are still antibodies against this, and this, the state of the law is quite reassuring with that. Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been enjoying the warm weather in the Northeast. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh, there's no greater gift than a week of 50-degree weather in February, which is usually, for me, the most miserable month right because it's it's uh, all the christmas decorations have disappeared but the cold weather is with you um so yeah it's it's been a hint of spring to come and um and yeah i'm just i'm just very grateful to escape and be outdoors a little bit more with the kids yeah it's been awesome jack butler you were uh one of the uh, lucky few invited to maddie's wedding wedding in scotland Yes, I was. I was I was in Scotland last weekend, which seems like an absurd thing historically to say. Just the very idea of going to Scotland for a weekend. Exp explaining that idea to an, an ancestor of mine is just... The, 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 po the possibilities of modernity are, are really something. But anyway, yes, it was a lovely wedding. I enjoyed Glasgow. I didn't really go anywhere else uh, in Scotland. I will return someday, if for nothing else, than to go to... Loch Ness, of course. I, I, I'm a stereotypical <laughs> American in that sense. But uh, yeah, it was a great wedding. Congrats to Maddie. One of the great uh, fake, speaking of disinformation, it's one of the great fake pictures of all time, the uh, Loch Ness Monster. That picture may have been fake, but, <laughs> but uh, yes. So yes, enjoyed Scotland. There's a tradition of going to Scotland for a weekend and making a mess. We're going all the way back to Edward I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've actually so, been to Loch Ness, but it's quite boring because you go on this boat and they take you around. And obviously there is no Loch Ness Monster, so you're actually just in a boat on a not particularly interesting log. So I read a book. Sorry, John. <laughs> no, lo lo so the, the, there is no Loch Ness Monster because the Loch Ness Monster died. It's very sad, actually. <laughs> Charlie? Well, my light item is chili lime shrimp, mm. which I discovered at the famous beach bar. 
Wow. You'd never ordered it before? Or I'd never ordered it before. I don't know why. It was quite small. It's an appetizer. Some of the appetizers there could be main. They're huge. This one I didn't know, but it is big jumbo shrimp, I suppose, in uh, a chili sauce with some coleslaw and then lime drizzled over it and it's absolutely delicious and refreshing and appropriate for our 75 degree weather that we have awesome you know we we, we got to get our act together and record a podcast from live from your bar okay. <laughs> absolutely yeah. absolutely we'll finally this podcast will finally be in touch with america and, and <laughs> know where the 2024 race and a bunch of other things are headed that's right so I'm I'm done with the Anglo-Saxons. I've uh, gone through a little Anglo-Saxon period here. Uh, I, I read a book. I actually finished it last night called The Anglo-Saxon World that I, I realized once I got into it, it was, I think it was a, a, actually a, a textbook, so a little bit much about the, the Anglo-Saxons, but it's a fascinating period. Um, uh, anyone interested in uh, reading a little bit about Alfred the Great, which I highly recommend, uh, I will recommend to you the book, Alfred the Great, by a guy named Justin Pollard, which is uh, very well done and very readable. It kind of has, it was, it was about a 20-year-old book, and the, the paperback cover is is not very alluring. So when this book arrived, I thought I made a mistake uh, in, in buying it, but actually it's it's better than he looks. You can't judge a book by its cover, it turns out. So it's, uh, I've had enough. It's farewell to the Anglo-Saxons for now. Thanks for what you did against the Vikings. Thanks for the sterling example of statesmanship from Alfred the Great. And thanks for saving and promoting the English language. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is, this is kind of a... Uh an odd one for me, but how the internet ruined women's magazines from the latest issue. Um, I think the author is, sorry, I just lost her name. Mary Rose Samariba. I think that, um, <laughs> women's magazines are not, they're not meant to appeal to me, but it seems like they've been a very important part of culture shaping and expectation shaping for, um, you know, 30 years, both like shaping consumer markets and uh, social attitudes. Uh, many of these magazines like originated as taking a very kind of almost parental uh, aspect to rearing women. And 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 uh, I think this was just an astute little bit of analysis about how uh, the Internet has destroyed them. Jack Butler, what's your pick? My pick is The Enduring Legacy of William F. Buckley Jr. by Neil Freeman. Uh, much that once was is now lost, for none now remain who remember it, except Neil remembers it. Neil's a great guy. Uh, he's the keeper of a lot of this, of this wisdom and legacy, and he just explains why William F. Buckley, the founder of this magazine, is so great in the way that, that few others can these days. So go, Neil. Go, William F. Buckley. Go, National Review. Sure. I'm going to take a post by Phil Klein. It's a piece by Phil Klein, in fact, that just went up. It's called, well, I saw Phil arguing about this yesterday, you see, so I already talked to him about it. But I, know <laughs> okay. what it I know what it says. You just read it during your answers, Jack. Don't worry. <laughs> no, it's a response to a piece that Josh Barrow posted yesterday in which he said that Joe Biden's State of the Union gives a preview of what Barrow believes will be a potent attack on DeSantis 
on Social Security and Medicare. And Barrow says, look, the Democrats are going to run the playbook they ran against Bob Dole as a Medicare and Social Security cutter. And Phil says, yeah, maybe, but you know who's going to do that first? Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is going to level that attack on DeSantis in the primary. He's going to attack him from the left and say that he wants to cut entitlements and is out of touch and so on. And this piece is excellent because I think it's absolutely true and it hadn't particularly occurred to me when I read the Josh Barrow piece in question. So I thought that was one of the um, lamest points some people are making about the State of the Union is like, wow, Democrats now won't be able to attack Republicans on entitlements because Joe Biden had this uh, amazing moment where everyone agree they're going to save or protect Medicare and, and Social Security. They'll find a way. <laughs> They'll find he a way. He literally flew to Florida two days later to do that explicitly. There you go. So my pick is actually Jack Butler's magazine uh, essay review on Ray Bradbury, a Library of America collection uh, of Ray Bradbury's work. We've talked a little bit about Ray Bradbury on this podcast, and it's just a good match of a writer with uh, something he truly loves. And Jack, by the way, I didn't, didn't know if you were aware of this, but my tentacles of influence extend so deep and wide uh, at, at this publication that this was my idea. I don't know whether it was ever relayed to you. This was my, oh, my idea to have wow. you do this. A Bradbury-esque twist yeah. to this saga. How about that? So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Jackie B. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to Babel and the Monster group and thanks especially to all of you for listening we're the editors we'll see you next time